Hey everybody, welcome back this week as we walk through the Word together. And as we walk out this truth, we discover that life is produced in us and also in other people. We are walking with one another, growing together to see the life of Christ continue to manifest and birth in us and then to see it spread outside of the walls of our houses and our church building. If I don't know you, my name is Adam. I love getting to share with you. If you are part of Midtown, remember to pray for several members of our church family. We've got Jay and TC, Brian, Jake, and Chuck all in Senegal at the moment. So let's be praying for them. And I was thinking about that. Jay sent me a little video of him driving a little motorcycle through the dirt roads of Senegal this morning. And I was on a mission trip in August. I'd go to Costa Rica regularly, but I was in Honduras. It's with a Another group, but several of the church were with me here. We had Jen and Butch and Hugh and Robin were with me. And in my mind, just being really honest, I was feeling kind of confident. I wouldn't say I like have confidence issues, but I wouldn't say that it's very often that I feel like, yeah, I got this. I don't have that feeling too often. But I had that feeling, right? It's going down to Honduras. Been there several times. I lived in Costa Rica for seven years. I've studied the culture and the language. I've even like I've published research on missions in the area. So I'm feeling pretty good. We get there where this little shuttle breaks down immediately. Hugh's with us. All he has is a Leatherman and the flashlight on his cell phone and a dirty rag. And he gets this thing running again. I was like so impressed. He told me what he did. I didn't understand a word he said. I just watched him. I said, awesome. So I'm still thinking, okay, but I'm going to have the opportunity to shine, right? So we drive around this big ranch to where we're going, and the missionary who's there says, I want you guys to move that giant thing over here. I'm like, I don't know how we can do that. He said, well, use the Kubota. Well, I mean, I don't know what a Kubota is. I mean, it's it's not a type of intelligence I have. And when he pointed, I kind of figured it out. So we go over there. Kubota doesn't work. Hugh, once again, today's his birthday, by the way, if you see him. Hugh figures out how to get this thing running. He diagnoses that there's a problem that's missing some part. He explains it to me. I'm just kind of sitting there, just helpless, useless, completely useless. Just like, hey, great job, Hugh. This is awesome, right? Well, that didn't work, so we have to get this tractor. The tractor didn't work because the brakes weren't working, so Hugh repairs the brakes. Meanwhile, me thinking that I have so much to offer, I'm just kind of standing there. Just watching, like, hey, this guy's so impressive. This guy's a genius. Feeling completely useless. I share this story for two reasons. One, because there's so many different types of intelligence. And today I'm going to talk about one called contextual intelligence. And Paul will demonstrate it for us as being like so aware of our situation, of our environment, of the people around us, of their thoughts, what they might be feeling, what they could perceive, their culture, their mindsets. And this is important as we attempt to advance the kingdom, but it's called contextual intelligence. Again, there's different types. For example, you, you don't want me grabbing a microphone and a guitar during worship. I don't have what's called musical intelligence. It's just not something that I have. But this contextual intelligence is something that we can all learn. But I also share this story about the mission trip because really Paul and Barnabas were on mission trips, right? And as we read in Acts 15 and Acts 16... They traveled around planting churches. In Acts 15, they came back together because of this problem where these Gentile Jesus followers were coming to the faith. And so the early church leaders said, well, what do we do with them? And the Pharisees were saying, well, they have to be circumcised. 
And they decided the council of Jerusalem, no, 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 they don't have to be circumcised. They're saved by grace alone. So that's where we are. And Paul and Barnabas, early two church fathers, incredible duo, said, hey, let's travel back and visit these churches that we planted. So here we are. We're in Acts 15, and we're getting the last, last section of Acts 15, starting in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take him, take with them one who'd withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So again, you've got Paul and Barnabas, and they're this incredible team. They've experienced so much together. They've seen supernatural things, miraculous things. Barnabas is known as a man of wisdom. He's known as an encourager. Got these great relational gifts. Paul is actually far more relational than you might think, but he's this incredible communicator. He's this well of wisdom. And we have this situation where these two just come into a disagreement. The subject matter of the disagreement was John Mark who was Barnabas' cousin, had deserted them earlier. And uh, Barnabas was ready to receive John Mark back. John Mark's ready to go again. And Paul says, no way. I'm not doing this. And what's interesting is that in verse 40, it says they had a sharp disagreement. And the word actually, if you study the original language, it denotes like, like a violent action or emotion. It's not like a gentleman's quarrel. This is like really intense fighting between Paul and Barnabas. You know, in my mind, I want to know who's right. Is Paul right or Barnabas right? Is Barnabas right for receiving John Mark, accepting John Mark as he is? He's redeemed, he's forgiven. Or was Paul right saying, no, 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 we have a high standard for this. We can't tolerate this, this. I, I tend to go with Barnabas, just how I'm wired. Some people tend to go with Paul. It doesn't actually say. But I, I share this because this like incident between Paul and Barnabas, it, it kind of stirs something inside of me. You see, if we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see that Paul actually reconciled with John Mark. We read that in Paul's letters to Timothy. But Paul never reconciled with Barnabas. And that sits heavy because like these are like two of the greats in the New Testament. Part of me feels a little bit relieved and encouraged that like these great men of the faith could do this. Makes it feel a little bit more normal. You know, it's kind of like when I read like Elijah got depressed. Makes it feel a little normal when I'm struggling with my emotions. But part of it makes me deeply sad. Like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this conflict? I know when I was younger, I remember having like conflict with a family member. And I'm sure I was being insensitive. I don't remember the subject matter. But the family member like ran off, cried, and slammed the door. And I learned, okay, conflict is bad. Avoid conflict. This doesn't work. When Kelly and I got married, I was 23. She was 21. We moved to Florida. A couple months into it, the worship leader and the senior pastor got into this big fight with Paul and Barnabas. And it tore the church in two. It was messy, painful, ugly. And you can be tempted to think, okay, 
Conflict is bad. Avoid conflict because conflict leaves a mess, right? And what I want to say is that I think as Jesus followers, we might need to actually even initiate conflict. Now, what I'm saying is that as Jesus followers, we're called to be mature, complete. We need depth. The Lord wants unity. He wants peace, but we have to work towards it, not a shallow surface thing. We've got to press into things for greater health and greater depth. See, peace is important to the Lord. It's hard. It takes a lot of work. We've got to guard our heart above all else. We can't give the enemy any kind of foothold. But we know how important peace is because it's all throughout the Scripture. right? God speaks of his covenants in terms of peace. In the Old Testament, they greeted each other with the word shalom, which is actually this really deep, powerful, meaningful peace. It's trusting in God's character. In the New Testament, almost every letter begins or ends with peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Jeremiah 8, God's angry with the Israelites because they're peace fakers. It says, you proclaim peace where there is no peace. So we're called to pursue peace and unity. And it's hard, but it takes intentionality. Sometimes it takes initiating conflict. When we were at that church in Florida that I mentioned after being there for a few years, few years, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And it was really before I even believed the Lord spoke. And he spoke and he said so clearly to me, he said, Adam, you're not loving people that well if you don't love them enough to press into hard things. And I felt pretty convicted. So I'd get along with anyone. But I didn't want to press into hard things because it was messy. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's pressing into it with like humility and kindness and grace and love with their best interest at heart. The consequences of not pressing in are way worse than pressing in. But Lord's just showing me that I've got to love people enough to press in, to really pursue unity, to really pursue the well-being, their well-being, and my well-being. But what's hard is that sometimes we just don't know, like, do I just like... Forget about that one, ignore it, or do I bring it up? And when I'm learning, for me, it's really powerful and healthy for me sometimes to say, well, that's just not a big deal, and not get so upset over little things. But I've noticed that if, if there's a chance that I might like write that down on a list, the offense I've received, and stick it in my back pocket, metaphorically, for the future to use, then I better address it, right? Again, with kindness and humility, Paul says this to Timothy, he says, the goal of the command is love, which comes from three things, a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a clean conscience. So if, there's, if there are issues between relationships that you have, I'd encourage you, press into them for health. It might be messy at first. I know there's this temptation for us to say, man, I'm just going to brush the dirt off my feet. Maybe you've heard that. That's biblical, Right. Really, contextually, you know what verse we need to hear? 70 times 7. I need to forgive him 70 times 7, which means keep on forgiving. Contextually, that's the verse we need to cling to. We've got to guard our hearts, not give the enemy any foothold. We need to press in what needs to be pressed into, again, with their best interest at heart. And it's a success if we're faithful. So, so we've got this messy separation, right? Paul and Barnabas. I want to say this, Paul picks Silas and goes this way. Barnabas picks John Mark, goes this way. And it, the Lord didn't cause the disagreement between them, but he still redeemed it. 
Why? He redeemed, he sent out more missionaries, more teams to reach the Lord. And I say that, say, Lord can redeem hard things in our lives. Normally the story I share is, is in Genesis 50, where there's a man named Joseph. And it's not Joseph as in Mary and Joseph, but it's Joseph from the book of Genesis early. And Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And the Lord orchestrated it so that he became the second man in Egypt. And he interpreted a dream and knew of a famine coming. And he saved thousands and thousands of lives. And he's face to face with his brothers. And his brothers feel terrible because they realize what they've done. And he says, what you intended for harm, the Lord intended for good. So I want you to know that hard things you have been through, the Lord can redeem. He's an expert at redeeming. We call him our redeemer. Can redeem for good. I'm going to keep going. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul meets this young man named Timothy. He's really impressed with this young man. Timothy is he's a Greek Gentile. Gentile just means not a Jewish person. So a Greek Gentile from his father's side. And then from his mother's side, though, she's Jewish. His mother and his grandmother are really godly Jesus followers, Jewish background. So he's half Jewish. He's half Greek Gentile. Now, here's the weird part is that in Acts 15, just before this passage, the church leaders came to the decision saying, Gentile believers do not need to be baptized. They're saved completely by grace. And now we get to Acts 16, and Paul circumcises Timothy. Like, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this, right? This is strange, because if you keep reading in the Scriptures, we see in Galatians 2, Paul had another ministry buddy named Titus, and Paul was very adamant about not letting Titus be circumcised. What do we do with these things? He initiated Timothy's, and Titus, he's like, no way. So much going on here. What I want to say is that Paul was exercising such an incredible amount of that contextual intelligence. He knew what was going on. He knew the people around him. He knew what they'd be thinking and feeling. He knew perceptions. He could anticipate. He knew their customs. He knew their beliefs. Paul was doing what needed to be done so that Timothy could have the right to be heard. Again, contextual intelligence, something that can be developed I'll give you an illustration of contextual intelligence. I shared that we lived in, in Costa Rica for seven years. At one time, I was serving in Nicaragua, helping a missions team there. And I've been traveling on what they call the chicken bus. Anybody familiar with the chicken bus? Anyway, you're packed in like this, more people than what's probably legally allowed in the USA, and traveling back. Well, I was a little confused. My phone didn't work in their country. I was a little confused when I traveled from this town to a little town called Rivas, and I wasn't sure how to get to the other bus station. So I decided, I'm just going to take the taxi to get to the border where my car was. So I decided, I'll take the taxi. It wasn't too expensive. I tried to build a relationship with a taxi driver. We're driving back, getting to know him. Nice guy. And this is just an illustration of my lack of contextual intelligence. 
as we pull up to the border, he can only get so close to the border before I have to get out of the car. And he says, I just want to tell you something. When you get out of the car, two guys are going to approach you. One from the front, one from the back. The one in the front is going to try to distract you and talk to you and engage you. And the one from the back is going to try to steal your wallet and maybe your phone. I'm like, no, that don't happen to me. It was, I get out of the car, sure enough. I see this guy smiling, looking at me, eye contact. That's strange. And I pull one of these, sure enough, another guy's coming right behind me. I'm, I grew up in Farragut. I mean, come on, I didn't know about this kind of stuff. That's lacking the contextual intelligence, right? And I remembered the words of a great uh, philosopher named George Costanza. Anybody familiar with George Costanza? George said this. He said he was at work. The way to get people to not engage with you and not mess with you is just look angry. If you look angry, they're not going to talk to you. They'll think you're busy. And so I did that. I put on my angry face, and it worked. These guys just turned and walked away. Didn't mess with Nobody stole my wallet. Nobody stole my phone. But it was a lack of contextual intelligence, which I had to learn. You know, some people call it street smarts, right? Little by little by little. What I'm saying is when Paul had Timothy circumcised, he was demonstrating so much contextual intelligence because he wanted, he wanted the kingdom to be advanced. He wanted Timothy to have the right to share the gospel. And he knew that Timothy would be offensive in the sight of the Jewish communities if he wasn't circumcised. He was so mindful. And I remember that Paul also, I call it accommodation. He accommodated himself. Remember, he received beatings so that he could have the right to be called a brother, just so he could share the gospel. In Acts 21, Paul does these Jewish ceremonial purification rites. We know that Paul knows those aren't necessary for him, but he did it so that he could be heard, to earn the right to be heard, to earn the right to talk about Jesus. Beautiful thing here, and I'm going to come back to this accommodation, is that in Acts 16.1, we see that Paul went to Lystra, right? And sometimes we read over these cities' names because we don't even know how to pronounce them. I don't know how to pronounce most of them. But we remember, wait a minute, Lystra, that's the exact same city where Paul was like stoned so severely they assumed he was dead. Obviously, he'd been beaten so badly by these flying rocks and stones that everyone assumed he's got to be dead if he's received this beating. Paul goes back to this town Come on, you know that there's a, a pretty negative connotation in Paul's heart and mind about this specific city, right? I wouldn't go back there. He goes back to this town, and the Lord redeems it. How? He gives him a spiritual son named Timothy. What a gift. Sons are really, really great gifts. He gives him a spiritual son. And I just say that because all throughout the scriptures, we see a God who redeems, a God who works Hard things and makes beautiful things. A God who's good and working, even when we don't realize that he's working. He's doing more than we could imagine. Romans 8 says he works all things for the good of those who love him. So, okay, back to this. Accommodation. This is what Paul is doing. Now, if you think about it, accommodation is, is using contextual intelligence to know, how can I reach these people? How can I engage? How can I honor them? How can I earn the right to be heard? This is what God did, sending Jesus, God in the flesh. God became flesh. This is, what, this is the perfect example of accommodation, right? 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul has this teaching, and he has these several statements where he said, I became as, or I became like. I'm going to share these verses with you. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in the blessings. So he's these statements where he says, I became as, or I became like. And he's not like a chameleon. What he's doing is he's accommodating himself to their customs, to their practices, insofar as it doesn't cause him to compromise to the truth of what he knows of his calling as a believer, but so that he can tell them about Jesus. He accommodates to them. So we're going back one more time. Titus, the one I mentioned in Galatians 2, where Paul's like, no, he cannot be baptized, was completely Gentile Greek, no Jewish blood whatsoever. And it was important that he not be circumcised because it was important because his message would communicate, you're saved by grace alone. So again, with Timothy, he was circumcised. Circumcision didn't affect his salvation, but Paul was accommodating so that Timothy's voice would be heard. So that Timothy would earn the right to share the gospel, to advance the kingdom, to remove any stumbling blocks. So this is my question. I'm, I'm already wrapping up. Why does this even matter today? Right? Why does it matter that Paul and Barnabas get in this huge fight? Why does it matter accommodation? Why does it matter that Timothy was circumcised, Titus wasn't circumcised? Why do these things even matter? And this is why it matters I have a slide for this. This is real important. The purpose of the church is to fulfill the mission of God. So this sounds heady. The purpose of the church, by church I don't mean midtown, I mean all who profess Christ. Our purpose as the body of believers is to fulfill the mission of God. Now the mission of God is big. I couldn't unpack all of it. It includes everything from discipleship and worship and praise and spiritual formations and mature, being mature and complete believers. But it also involves us as believers accommodating to reach those for the gospel, doing what we can to engage them where they are. Some churches accommodate in different ways. Um, some accommodate with having the service of multiple languages, right, with a translator. Some might have ASL. Some accommodate by offering maybe like a hymn and then some less traditional worship. I think, to be honest, I think Midtown's in a way accommodating by, by letting me preach. Jay doesn't need me to preach. Jay's amazing at preaching. If you haven't heard Jay, you've missed out. He's a great communicator, so passionate for the Lord. But we're a little different if you haven't noticed, right? <laughs> I mean, we really enjoy each other. We like to tease and heckle each other a lot too, but, but our styles are different. So it's a form of, of accommodating because we want to reach people. We want them to know the Lord. We want them to make the Lord known. So I want to challenge you. How can you accommodate? And I know there's that little thought like, wait a minute, I'm not going to accommodate. I've got to hold true to the truth. We don't compromise the truth. Paul didn't compromise the truth. 
He didn't compromise his calling. But he did accommodate himself. I became as, I became like, so that I could reach him for the gospel. How can we do that? Jen and Ryan are going to share tonight at a meeting we have right after service. And you're welcome. Space is small, but anyone's welcome to join. I'm like, how do we do this in our neighborhoods? How do we do it? I'm not great at that. I'm going to learn. How do we do it at work to accommodate them? So we might earn the right to share the gospel. I asked Jay before, before he left for Africa, I said, Jay, you're really great at meeting people where they are. Like, how do you accommodate? Like Paul was accommodating to reach him the gospel. How do you do it? What does that even mean today? And Jay gave me a really wise answer. He said, I think accommodating involves listening first. Instead of like going with an agenda and throwing something onto someone and projecting onto them, going to them and just asking them their story, asking them about their life and their experience, their hurts and their struggles, so that I can meet them where they are. And I thought, that's exactly right. That's accommodation. That's what we're called to do. So let me just close. Just my last thought here as the band comes up. The purpose of the church is to fulfill the mission of God. This is what we get to do. We get to be a part of God's mission of what he's doing. And part of that is unity among the body. Part of that is modeling Christ's love. So this involves us having to press in to hard things for the sake of health, for the sake of real unity and real peace, not shallow health, not shallow peace. It's unity. So if you feel a conviction in your heart that you might need to engage in a conflict, I just want to fan that flame and say, go for it. But do it in humility and love. The second part is, I just want to encourage us, think how in the world can we meet those around us with the gospel? I will say this, I've realized it's not waiting for them to come into the church doors. Sure, I want to show grace and kindness to everyone involved, but there's a call for us to go out, to go to, to go toward, to reach them and be with them. And the last part, I just want to say, in whatever season you are, as we, we get to be a part of this, of developing healthy relationships, of advancing the kingdom, of fulfilling the mission of God, let's just like rest in the truth that he's a redeemer and he's good. You know, the most heinous evil in all of history, like the most gross, was the torture and crucifixion of Jesus. And look how the Lord redeemed it for the greatest good at all time salvation, inviting us into relationship, into intimacy, inheritance, part of his family. So my prayer and my pray for us is that it ends in 16.5 and he says that the church just grew in their faith and also in their numbers. So Lord, let's pray that our faith would grow. Would we know how to communicate your love in ways that it's received, in ways that it's understood, in ways that lives are reached for your glory. Healing is fostered. Joy and hope are birthed. Give us courage to press into hard things, but also wisdom to know how to do it in a way that's honoring. Thank you, Jesus. Would we value peace? And would we walk in humility? I do pray for, for the numbers to grow, just like it says in verse 16:5, not for the sake of midtown, but for the sake of your kingdom, the souls being saved. And I pray for even more than numbers that we would grow maturity and depth, more and more complete. 
Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. As we just go about our days, would we just be so convinced that you are a God who redeems? Our hearts have peace because of that. And if we're in that stage, we're just like, this is a miserable stage. I just want to get out of this season. Would we be present in the moment, knowing that this is a season of transformation of our hearts and it's necessary, but for our hearts to be convinced that you're good. You are who you say you are. You're working even when we don't see it. You're working for the good. So we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Yeah, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for letting us be a part of your work. Thank you that we get to participate. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Spread blessings on our church, blessings on all present. In Jesus' name, amen.